Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining us is the is the official professor of the Hockey PDO Cast. It's it's Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, what's going on, man? I'm well. How are you doing, Dimitri? I'm good. Uh, we're uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. It's uh, we're coming off a pretty fun and uh, I guess you could say expectedly unexpected first round where there was a bunch of upsets and uh, my bracket just went up in flames completely. I don't, I don't know how how did you do in terms of your model in the in the first round? Uh, so the the model seems to do more or less okay. It doesn't pick winners, of course. Yeah. Um, but I pick winners for my own amusement, mm-hmm. and uh, and I. I did six out of eight. That's not bad. I missed on San Jose and Minnesota, mm. but, uh, but otherwise, and I still feel pretty good about how they played. You know, shame about the whole losing business. So now did you pick the Bruins because you're a Senator? I mean, did you pick the senators because you're a senators fan or because you're, you kind of readjusted your expectations after all the injury news came out? Um, a bit of both. Mm. The, I also felt that, that Washington, in addition to just having serious injuries, I felt like they were the kind of serious injuries that would be destabilizing um, because they lost not merely good players, but also regular players who had played almost every game and they lost them just immediately before the playoffs. And I thought that was the kind of injury that it would be very difficult to adjust from. But I think you saw perhaps some of that where you you saw the kind of penalties from, from Boston that you would expect from a team that was uh, you know, not just playing weekly, but playing in a kind of discombobulated way. All those puck over glass penalties, all those too many men penalties, and the kinds of penalties that I think are, are from disorganization. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've come around a bit on the center as well, and we'll get into them a bit later. But let's uh, let's hammer through each individual matchup here and try to highlight some stuff that people can look out for. Maybe some some high leverage components that could swing each series, and and maybe even pick some winners at the end. Although uh, after how my first round went, I, I think people should probably stay as far away from my picks as they can. Um, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna start off with the West here for a change because it seems like we always uh, we either do prioritize the East or we get you know called out for prioritize prioritizing the east even though we might not so we'll start with the west this time just so there's no uh funny business going on and and, <laughs> okay. and i also i think it also helps since um you know the, the west starts first on on wednesday evening so uh, it'll give us an extra day before the east kicks off but i i thought we'd we'd start with this blues uh predators series and i noticed that your model had the blues favored by the most razor thin of margins i think it was 51 to 49 and 
I was a bit surprised to see that, uh, just based on what we saw in round one. But uh, I don't know, like, like shed some light on why you think that uh, you, 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 your model seems to like the Blues more than I think most people generally do. So part of why I think um, the well, home ice advantage is is one thing. Mm-hmm. The uh, the other thing, of course, is that both teams, both the Blues and Nashville, are incredibly strong defensively. Uh, I think Nashville has a slightly stronger offense than than the Blues do. They're a slightly more well rounded team, whereas the Blues have considerably more defensive strength and less offensive strength. But that, I think, if you're a real sort of purist playoff type, I think that's going to be your your marquee series in terms of, you know, if you like to see really solid systems-based defenses, uh, I think that's what you're going to get. You know, St. Louis, for instance, has been able to, to absorb, absorb is the word I want, the loss of Shattenkirk, who was an excellent component for their defense and still, you know, they haven't missed a beat. I mean, that, that shows you just how good the systems are defensively. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and obviously Hitchcock departing is, is, one thing, but the systems that he put in place are, are still extremely strong. And so I think the, the defensive aspect of that series is going to really be where it's won. You know, that's yeah. conventional wisdom, but I think here it happens to be true. I, I don't think that's true, incidentally, of, of any of the other series. Well, I, I think so. An important part of our job and, and, and being a, an analyst in this field is being you know willing to admit when you're wrong and learning from your mistakes and, and adjusting your expectations and beliefs on the fly as, as new information present itself and when we get out east and, and talk about the senators uh, that's going to come up again and you know that'll be a very relevant discussion there but I think in this particular case I'm I don't know like I, I you obviously had the wild as well I think everyone had the wild in that first round series against St. Louis and I still feel like pretty good everything I said, even though I, I picked the wild in five and I called it arguably the most lopsided series of the bunch. I, you know, it's, it's just one of these things where it's in the playoffs. You always have these caveats with goalies. And unfortunately, uh, Bruce Boudreaux once again got goalied, man. I, I don't know how else to put it. Like it's, it, you look at all the numbers and it's just Jake Allen was just out of his mind. I mean, he stopped 174 of 182 shots he faced for, for a 956 save percentage. And I guess the, more relevant discussion for us here rather than talking about what's already happened with Jake Allen. It's, it's more so, do you think that the Blues are doing something now to all of a sudden um, boost his performance up? Or do you think it's just one of these kind of hot goalie runs that happens and they come in, come in ebbs and flows? Because I only the only reason I bring that up is obviously, you know, a, a five-game sample here where he looked incredible against Minnesota is one thing, but it's also worth noting that you know, he had like an 895 save percentage in 35 games under Hitchcock. And then from February 1st on under Mike Yo in, in those 25 regular season games, he jumped all the way up to a 938. And that was something that stuck, stuck out to me when I was preparing my notes for, for that matchup. And I was like, well, if Jake Allen can keep up his good play from the end of the regular season, maybe the, the Blues have a chance here. And he obviously exceeded even my expectations. But do you, did you notice any sort of noticeable trends between how the Blues were playing uh, under Hitchcock versus Yo, or was it just Jake Allen just started saving more pucks than he was doing before? I didn't see anything in particular. The there are a couple little notes which might be sort of illusions, and they might be real effects. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't really confidently say that there's any kind of keeping pucks to the perimeter mm-hmm. with the you know, for instance, in that last series with Minnesota, there were plenty of shots from very very close to the net. But there were not a great deal of shots from directly in front. There seems to be uh, uh, not so much a box out, but a box down somehow, where you can you can come very close to the Blues net, 
as long as you're on an angle somehow. But if you're right in the in the low slot, then the Blues boxed out very, very well in that last playoff series. And a little bit, I noticed that also in the end of the regular season. So that, that I wonder, the, and this is purely speculation, but I wonder if that might not be uh, an adjustment caused by, for instance, the, the uh, intentions of Martin Brodeur, mm-hmm. who's been working with Alan specifically. And perhaps there's some, there's some angle that says, you know, this is an area of strength for, for Alan where he doesn't appear to give up very many shots on like low jams on either side. And then you can say, you know, we can give up more shots like that and prioritize taking away slot shots. The, which I, I don't think that's a strategy that would work very well for many goaltenders. And I'm not completely convinced that it's even a, a very good strategy for, for the blues, but it's, it, I've seen just enough in, in the way that the shot locations change over time to think that they may be trying to do that. And it may well be a good idea. Yeah, I also read something, a theory about how, uh, you know, under Hitchcock, they'd gone to this sort of weird uh, man-to-man defensive scheme that was exposing them a little bit. And, you know, the Avalanche under, under Patrick Waugh were famously doing that a few years ago, and it, and it worked out horribly for them. And and when once Mike Yo took over, he went back to more of that conventional zone defensive scheme, and, and that certainly uh, could do some, could play some factor in it. I, I don't know. I, I obviously, with this stuff, generally, it's kind of like the answer is somewhere in between where Jake Allen wasn't as bad as he looked in those first 35 games, and he's not as good as he's looked since. Like, he'll probably regret somewhere into into the middle ground there and i guess we'll see if 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 he does that if it'll be enough for the blues to get by i I will say that you know as skeptical as i am of the blues being a a good team or even better than the predators uh when you have guys like vlad tarasenko and jaden schwartz who are just as as dynamic as it gets with the puck and and you know can single-handedly turn turn a game on its head by just breaking through and scoring a quick goal before you know what really happened like like that's the sort of stuff that really matters when you come into these close games in the postseason I agree. And I think also that, that it's, uh, you know, the defensive effort from Minnesota in, in that last playoff series was also incredibly strong. Mm. And, and the Blues managed to find a way to score enough anyway. And so the, you know, I don't, I think the defensive capabilities of Nashville are similar to Minnesota. So there's going to be, in some sense, it's a lot, I think it's going to be a lot like a repeat of the same series, only uh, having beaten Minnesota, I think they have a slightly easier task in beating nashville although in fact those two teams match up very very similarly right they do and and, well i I think you know whenever we're we're breaking this stuff down whether it's even a game-by-game basis or a full series we're working in probabilities and i think that you know if if i had to bet on something if if the blues once again control like 41 percent of the shots at five on five and 45 percent of the scoring chances and have like a 41 percent uh expected goal rate I'd, i'd i'd expect that uh you know they might not be as fortunate this time like they they won both of those games in overtime and including a, a a goal from Joel Edmondson which is a very unlikely source and Jake Allen was out of his mind and you know everything just seemed to come together for them at the right time at at at, at poor Bruce Boudreaux's expense so I, I'm not sure if that uh good fortune will continue for them here if if they get into sim- into similar uh games like that but I don't know let, let, let's segue here to the Predators then because uh they looked impressive man like beyond just the fact that you know the Blackhawks only scored three goals against them and got swept out in four games like just the way those games looked it was everything we've been talking about Nashville all season where even when they came out of the gate struggling and and were losing in pretty underwhelming fashion we just kept saying listen they're deep they're fast they're skilled and they're going to be a nightmare to tactically go up against just because if everything's clicking for them they can come at you in these relentless waves and we really saw that in that first round matchup I agree. And, and there's not been, 
there's been much too much said about the Blackhawks and not nearly enough said about the Predators mm-hmm. that they've been the in particular they they have I mean they're a team that's dear to my heart because of the way that they are built which is very carefully very steadily very and and with lots of of small incremental improvements and the and the overall team strength is is really strong. You know, well, I think we'll see even stronger teams in the East when we talk about Pittsburgh and Washington, but in the West, I don't think there's another team which is all around strong the same way that Nashville is, you know, well above average in almost everything with, with no weaknesses to speak of. Yeah. Well, and I think that is a, that's a good point. And it's kind of an underreported story in the grand scheme of things where, uh, the Nashville Predator is a franchise for the longest time under, under Barry Trotz were considered this like boring, slow defensive team. And then slowly but surely, like they drafted really well and they accumulated all of this young forward talent and they brought in Peter Laviolette and he, uh, went to more of like a fast paced offensive game. And now they're just, they're, you know, they still probably don't get the credit you do, they deserve, as you mentioned. Like it was mostly about, oh my god, I can't believe the Blackhawks lost. It wasn't, wow, I can't believe the Predators won this series. But they're like, they're incredibly fun to watch, and I think that it's going to be good for 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 them and for the NHL for them to finally start getting uh, a bit more national spotlight here as they play some of these important games. I agree, and and that's it's interesting that that's but an excellent point which you made about um, Laviolette playing a more up tempo system. I think that's. That's the kind of thing that you have to do to win in the playoffs is that you have to be able to to generate offense. And I think that they have the kind of the kind of setup which which allows that. And that's part of why Chicago struggled so much as they did, is that that they didn't have the kind of systems which which generate offense. Mm-hmm. Well, let's give some of those guys some love then. I know I know that, you know, you were talking about uh Victor Arvidsson uh, on, on Twitter maybe last week or something like that and, and I wrote an article about him and uh, we're both uh, charter members of the Victor Arvidsson fan club but I mean that top line of him himself Forsberg and Johansson was expectedly dynamite in that series but I thought that an even more notable development for, for the Predators and their chances of moving forward here are the second and third lines which feature some young relatively unproven guys like Kevin Fiala and Callie Yarncroak and, and Pontus Aberg and Colton Sissons uh, really flashed and and you know, all those all those depth concerns we had about the Blackhawks uh, throughout the season uh, were really borne out in that series because they just had no answer for those lines. So uh, when I when I'm looking ahead to this series against the Blues and I'm trying to preview it and figure out how it's going to play out, like that's going to be a big key to see if the Blues are able to actually match up with those lines because you know we know that that Schwartz Tarasenko combo is going to be deadly and going to be a problem for the Predators. But I wonder if they're going to have enough depth themselves to to match up line for line with the Predators. I think that's all true, and and I'm not sure that we'll see quite the same the same performance from those depth players that we saw from the series against Chicago. You know, one of the things about that makes depth players depth players. You know, every player in the NHL has flashes of brilliance, and 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 every player, every especially every scorer, is a streaky scorer. Mm-hmm. But not every. But what what distinguishes the best from the people who only do it occasionally is 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 precisely the distinctions that make people into first liners. People who can do it regularly, more or less regularly, and the people who can only do it every now and then. And and so part of what makes Nashville really interesting to me is not those depth players, although they're strong, and, and in particular they showed it against Chicago, um, but the way that the, the defense core as a whole is structured and the way that it's deployed. Mm-hmm. And in particular, they, Nashville, more than any other team in the league, um, except possibly Calgary, who are eliminated now, have a a top four which is virtually indistinguishable. They the there's 
there's really no way you can pick two guys and say that's the top pair and find the next two guys and say that's the second pair. They really just have a top four and then also a bottom pair, which plays much, much less. And and when you have the kind of the kind of personnel that they do, you know, Yossi, Subban, um, Ekholm, and... Hellas. Um, um, yes, sorry. <laughs> the name just ran out of my head. Yep. You know, you... And you're playing them all, almost identical minutes every night, in every situation against all lines. There's much less um, matching of defense pairs from Laviolette against offensive top lines. He just rolls all four of them out constantly with the occasional shift in easier conditions for the third pair. Now that that kind of foundation to build on is really good. The, I mean, because there's there's very, very few times when you can take advantage of their defense. Whereas every, almost every other team in the league, even the ones with strong defense cores, you know, like St. Louis, for instance, there are is more often weakness moments that you can take advantage of. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. I was actually that was going to be my next uh, topic of discussion. I, I was wondering, you know, whether we'd see a lot of Subban and Ekholm against that Terrace Ankle line, or whether you know we'd see that top four just kind of spread the wealth. And I, I imagine on the other end of things, uh, you know, the Blues are going to try really hard to get that 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 Petrangelo and and Bo Meester pairing out as much as they can against that Arvidsson, Johansson, Forsberg line. Yeah, I, I think I expect that we'll see just as much of the top two Nashville pairs. I don't see anything from Laviolette that suggests it'll be different mm. all of a sudden with the Blues compared to to how they've done in the past. Yeah, it'll be more interesting to see what he does with his bottom pair and where he decides that it's safe to play them. But I, that's what I that's what I love about this Predators team. You know, we're discussing how uh, well put together they are and how everything they're doing makes sense. And you look at this third pairing, and it's you know they have Matt Irwin and Yannick Weber, and they're both guys that uh, it, people have been talking about how they you know they deserve more opportunity and and a, and a legitimate regular lineup role in this league for years. And finally, the Predators give both of them that at the same time, and you know without feeling this compulsive need to have at least one of those prototypical you know big big shot blocking stiffs in there just to fit the quota that the NHL seems to have for every team. So it's 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 kind of cool that, you know, they're obviously uh, going to get sheltered a little bit and, and used selectively, but both guys can play, they can skate, they can move the puck, they, they have legitimate skills, so it's kind of cool to just see that they're getting their opportunity finally here. Yeah, and, and of that regular six, of course, Matt Irwin is 29, and he's the oldest one on the blue line. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, that's, it, you know, that tells you how the how the team is put together also is that it... You know, that's one of the ways that you can run that, you know, we're going to have the same four guys and play huge minutes is because they're quite a bit younger than the average defense line. Yeah, yeah, get used to some of these names. Um, okay, let's 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 shift gears here and talk a little bit about the, <laughs> the Ducks and the Oilers. And I think the most logical place and, and the most important one to start the discussion of this series is, by all accounts, it sounds like the Ducks are expecting to get both Sammy Vadnan and Cam Fowler back for this series. I'm not sure if necessarily for game one, but definitely at some point. And, you know, assuming Randy Carlisle plays this right, and I guess sometimes that can be a big if, um, it, they should have uh, a really good looking blue line here to match up against, against the Oilers forwards, because, you know, even if Kevin Bieksa stays in there, which he probably will, because he seems to be such like a Randy Carlisle, uh, playoff type guy, at least the bumps, Corbinian holes are out of the lineup. And all of a sudden you have all three pairings with at least one dynamic puck moving guy out there. And that's, uh, that should bode pretty well for the ducks who are getting healthy at the, just the right time. I agree. And I, I think that, that Anaheim has to be favored a fair bit in that series. The, they they don't have the kind of flash that that Edmonton has. 
and you know, McDavid is, is every inch as good as everybody says he is. And, but they, you know, they don't have that problem that Edmonton does of relying on, on one or two extremely good players where they, they can distribute the, the quality of their team throughout. And I think, I think that's going to bode well for them. So, this, this is something I've been, I've been mulling over now, just, you know, because so much of this series is going to be how do the Ducks try and slow down McDavid? And we saw the Sharks, um, you know, be like pretty overly obsessed about getting Vlasic and Braun out there whenever they could against McDavid. Um, I, I guess the next logical domino to fall here, um, for the Ducks with, with them getting healthy is do we see Randy Carlisle reunite that Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson pairing? Because, you know, they've played so much together over the past two seasons and whenever they've been out there the ducks have absolutely dominated the puck particularly defensively where they you know you can make the case that they're one of the top handful of uh shut down defensive pairings it seems like whenever they're out there just the other team just isn't able to muster any sort of offense and that would come in handy against mcdavid and dry where you could sort of load up and try to stop that one line and i wonder if carlisle will do that because we did see you know some of it was probably just because of injuries where they had guys like montour and shea theodore in the lineup and and they're young and inexperienced so maybe he wanted to to spread the wealth and have each guy playing with a veteran presence so maybe that's why guys like Lindholm and and Manson weren't playing together but I don't know do you think we see uh, them go back to that pairing that's worked so well for them in the past now that they're healthy I mean if I'm always worried when guys come back in the middle of the playoffs when they say oh he's totally 100% Mm. it's always slightly suspicious to me that maybe he's not completely 100% but but if if they can return to midseason form, you know, Rotten and specifically, and then I, I think that 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 shutdown pairing that opens up that possibility for that shutdown pairing, and against Edmonton, I think that's the way to go. You know, if it's not the same in St. Louis and Nashville, I don't think you know even Tarasenko, for instance, being as good as he is, the, I don't think you say you know we're going to game plan for Tarasenko. I don't think that's the way that you win if you're Nashville. But if you're Anaheim, I think you do have to say we're going to plan for McDavid. He's such an incredibly large fraction of how the Oilers win any of their games that I think you can say, you know, if we can, I mean, it's a big if, but if anybody can do it, it's probably that shutdown pair that you mentioned. If we can neutralize McDavid, hold him to only, you know, a couple of goals for the whole series, uh, try to keep the chances down to only a handful of games, then then the, the series opens up for Anaheim a lot more because the, they're going to be at a huge advantage after that. If they can do it. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that's that's a drama I've been beating here for a while, especially since the trade deadline uh, where they made the sneaky good acquisition of Patrick Eves. I remember at the time, like I was skeptical because you know he was riding a high shooting percentage, and it seemed like so many of his goals were coming on the power play. And I, I was wondering whether he'd actually be the type of difference maker that that you know the team acquiring him would think they were getting just based on his high goal totals, but. Listen, he's stepped into this lineup perfectly, mostly because he's just allowed everything to fall back into its more natural, logical place. And now they're playing Corey Perry on the third line, and all of a sudden they have three lines that can all score and, and control the puck, and, and that makes them much more dangerous to play against than some of these, uh, you know, past Randy Carlisle trademark teams we've seen that have been so top heavy, where they've been like just basically rides the top line, and after that, it's just holding your holding holding your breath and closing your eyes and just praying that it's over soon. So it's 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 i've really come around on this ducks team as the years go as the year has gone along because all of a sudden now their their lineup just seems to make much more sense where there's way fewer holes than there might have been back in october or november yeah and and somebody with a i mean all sure is a streaky like we were talking about before but somebody with 
with a natural shooting talent um, like Eves has. You know, I don't think you would naturally pull him out of a hat as you know marquee shooting talent like Tarasenko or Hoffman. The, but but he has that kind of shot ability, which I think is useful for Anaheim specifically because their most prominent weakness is the a weak shooting percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a problem for years, and it's it's not a Carlisle issue. Um, they've had this problem, much like the Kings, whom they they were built in some sense to resemble, where you know you have an all-around extremely strong team, and yet the the shot percentage is really weak. So it's not as weaknesses go; it's not severe, but it's it's definitely there. But they can generate a lot of offense without generating very much uh, as many goals as you might expect, given given the shooting talent that they ought to be putting out. So Eves fills a, a hole there. Which said, I think that's part of why he's been flourishing. Yeah, yeah, and especially, I mean, you know, you see he's like hanging around the net a lot and he seems to get into all these good scoring regions. So, so I think there's definitely something to that. And uh, the emergence of, you know, his arrival into the lineup and then the emergence of Ricard Raquel this year has really given them an, uh, an interesting little scoring dynamic that they might not have had last year. Uh, with that said, like, let's get back to this McDavid thing because so much of this series will uh, depend on how that plays out. And I think that, you know, the funny or maybe scary thing, depending on what your perspective is about Connor McDavid right now, is that, you know, the, the Sharks did make a point of hard matching their top pairing against him. And that was, that's unquestionably one of the league's top shutdown pairings. And, you know, I think they did a good job, but still you look and, you know, McDavid only made, might have had two goals and four points in those six games, but his line just, uh, had the puck pretty much whenever they were out there. And, you know, they had like 70% of the scoring chances or something. And, and it was just, I, I think that this, the, the, the frightening thing is that as dominant as he was in that round one series, I still think like there's, we can expect that he's going to be even more productive in this series, which, you know, if you're the Ducks, you're, that's, uh, that's not something you want to hear right about now. Well, I mean, if the, Clefbaum had to leave the most recent game with right. an illness, in which he played extremely well, incidentally, the, before he before he felt he had to leave. And you know, you can never quite know how much to believe the quotes after games, but it sounds more and more like that San Jose Edmonton series was like the infirmary series, where almost every single player was either sick or hurt. And so, if if the Oilers are, you know, if they were substantially sick and now they're not, the in particular, Glassbaum playing on a, on McDavid's wing, presumably he'll play there quite a bit. You know that that is a frightening thought, and and so the other possibility is that the you know you talk about shutting down important players. You know that's that's great if you can do it. If you can't, it's possible that the wise choice might be to not try to to say you know we there's no way we can possibly win unless we score three goals. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start so you sit down and you say okay. You know, we're not going to pay first attention in the first instance to how many we let in. We're going to say, how do we guarantee ourselves a really good shot at scoring three times? You know, and then we're going to win some of them three two, and then we're going to win other ones of them, you know, four three, and we're going to lose some five three five two. The and that's that's an extremely different approach, and it would be very unusual to see that. Um, but it's if you if you have that kind of thing where your opponent has the kind of resources that you simply can't match, you might be what you have to do. Yeah, I'm glad you gave gave a Clef bomb a little bit of a shout shout out there. You know, the other day, uh, the nominees for the or the finalists for the Lady Bing Trophy came out, and uh, he wasn't one of them. It was it was three forwards, which it typically is, other than that one Brian Campbell year, I think. And it's it, it's interesting because especially uh, in the postseason where we see how you know 
team and player discipline can play such a big role when all these games are so tight and, and you really don't want to give the other team uh, cushy scoring opportunities on the power play. Like Cliff Baum's played... I think over 2,000 total minutes now this season, if you combine regular season and postseason, and and he has he's taken three total penalties during that time, and it's just you know his his offensive skills and his shot from the point are are definitely one thing, but his just his discipline is something that I think you know people are slowly starting to come around on and appreciate, but there's still this yeah, a little bit of a pervasive idea in the hockey community where it's like you know defensemen should be should be rugged and physical and maybe uh low penalty minutes might be a sign that he's playing a, a soft game and he's not you know finishing his checks and stuff like that but no it's just it's just he's always in the right position at the right time and and that's a legitimate skill and it's very very valuable to the Oilers right now yeah i agree in fact i the it's this bias with the lady Bing is so pervasive that uh, that i called him a winger a second ago by mistake you know he's <laughs> but he's he's not of course i mean he's not but I, sorry, of course he's not a winger, but he should not be out of the Lady Bing conversation right. either. That's, I mean, that's also a problem. And, and this is, I think we're, we're seeing people come around on this, on this idea that, you know, I think we're finally realizing that taking penalties is bad yes. and players that do it are hurting their team. And, and talking about players that take penalty minutes as if that's a good thing is a mistake. You know, we, it's, it's so strange how we talk constantly about how, you know, we really want players to sacrifice their own individual benefit for the sake of the team. And yet when players take penalties, which is by definition, the opposite where they do something that hurts the team, you know, possibly to make themselves not look like they're going to get burned on a breakaway or, or et cetera, et cetera. You know, very often individual penalties are, are attempts to cover up from individual mistakes. And instead of saying, well, that's an extremely obvious mistake. We say, look at that. Good for him, which is, which is completely I mean, is is the most literally wrong, most obviously wrong way that that mainstream coverage uh, has annoyed me over the last several years. Yeah. And like, but like I said, mercifully, it is it is much improved recently. It's definitely getting better. Yeah, uh, still a ways to go, but getting better. Um, I think a good development for the Oilers uh, in the final couple weeks of the season, and then in round one especially, was I thought the the Ryan Nugent Hopkins line looked really good and gave them an interesting uh little dynamic there with a with a second second line that looked dangerous uh with Lucic and Eberle and I, I you know they're gonna need that as as, as good as McDavid and Dreisaitl are uh especially against this Ducks team that can roll those three lines and 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 produce with all of them like they're gonna need some help there and you know we saw Cassian step up in in round one and, and they're gonna need more more like that you know I, I spent a lot of time thinking about whether the Oilers should be experimenting, uh, splitting up McDavid and Dreisaitl and, and putting Dreisaitl on his own line for a more balanced attack. And it seems like they don't want to do that for whatever reason. Instead, against the Sharks, they went a different route by splitting Maroon up from that combination and, and swapping him with Drake Kajula. Uh, so we'll see if, if, you know, if the series starts off a little bumpy for them and, and maybe they get exposed a little bit in their depth. Maybe they go to that, but it seems like they're, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl are basically uh, attached to the hip at this point, and, and we shouldn't expect anything to change in that regard. Well, the the thing, of course, is about changes like that is that a lot of coaches, you know, won't won't make those changes until they feel they need to. Mm-hmm. And so you might well see an interesting situation um, where, for instance, you know, we were talking earlier about putting together a specific shutdown pairing to try to take care of McDavid. You know, and and let's say that that Anaheim does that, and for a game or two, it works. You know, they maybe they win one and they lose one, but but McDavid is is clearly contained. Then you might start to see some uh, the kind of, of adjustment from the Edmonton coaching staff where where you see changes like that. And I think 
I think this is one of those, one of the series, unlike Seattle, Nashville, sorry, Seattle, St. Louis, Nashville, like we were talking about a moment ago, I mm-hmm. think, I think you'll see, can, I think you'll see a lot more cat and mouse style coaching in Edmonton, Anaheim, where the, where the coaching decisions are considerably more interesting because the rosters, especially Edmonton's roster is more uneven. So that I'm, I'm, you know, if, if coaching matchup is your thing, I think that Edmonton Anaheim series is going to be really interesting for it. That is absolutely my thing. That's one of the funnest things about the playoffs, the, the chess match and the X's <laughs> and O's from, from one game to the next. Um, yeah, the one final thing in, in this series, uh, and you know, maybe you have some insight on this. I honestly can't decide like who, who has the advantage in net in this series? Because yeah, Cam Talbot had a really good season and, you know, he probably played way too much, but it didn't seem to show any signs of fatigue in, in round one against the Sharks. And, uh, John Gibson, uh, aside from a small hiccup there in game three, which wasn't really his fault because they just kept taking penalties and giving up power play goals against, was phenomenal himself. And it seems like it might be like a little bit of a draw. Like obviously in a short, in a short sample, one of these guys could implode and the other guy could play remarkably well, but just purely from like a true talent level, it seems like they're pretty evenly matched. Yeah. And I, I think that, that the difference might even be, um, might even be that workload that you mentioned, the, you know, Anaheim hasn't seen the same kind of of heavy workload placed on on a single goaltender, and whereas in Edmonton, I you know, people were starting to sound the alarm about overuse. I mean, almost halfway through the season, we were already seeing, you know, he's being used to an incredible degree, and you know the the wheels are going to come off at some point, and I don't know if it's going to be like the situations where. You know, you win the cup and then finally say, okay, I'm not going to speak to anybody, let alone walk anywhere for two months. You know, that, but, but I, I would be nervous if I were an Edmonton fan about exactly that. Yeah. I mean, yes, he's going to be started slowly approaching like a hundred starts this season pretty soon, which is pretty absurd. We haven't seen that in a, in a long, long time, but I mean, he looked amazing against the Sharks. So it could very well could mm-hmm. be one of these things where, it, you know, it's, it's always tough um, because, even though Cam Talbot's not necessarily like super young, he played in college for a while and, and he's, he's in his late twenties now. Like he, it, it's tough to take, you know, whether the fact that he hasn't ever has seen a workload like this as a good thing, because it means that he's pretty fresh and it's not like he's been, you know, his team's been riding him into the ground for years or if it's a negative because it's just something that he's never really experienced or had to deal with before. So I guess it's going to be one of those things where depending on how it plays out, we're probably going to look back at it in hindsight and make wide sweeping conclusions. Cause that's what media members <laughs> gener- generally tend to do and, and focus on. But uh, it's, de- it's definitely something to kind of keep an eye, eye out for and, and, and monitor moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And I, my in your suspicions, if you like, are that that workload is one of those things that is like um, like sleep debt, where there's only really one solution, and that's to sleep more, to rest more. <laughs> right. That you know, the I think I think the you know I don't have like a sports science background, but I think the established wisdom there is is pretty good. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, okay, let's take a quick little break here to hear from our sponsor, and we'll uh, we'll get back to the Eastern Conference on the other side of the show. Let me give all of you a quick heads up about SeatGeek, who have been kind enough to both sponsor the show and also provide those of you who aren't skipping past this segment essentially some house money to work with. It's pretty sweet being a sports fan these days. Uh, the baseball season's underway, and most importantly, the NBA and NHL playoffs are finally here. If you've been waiting around for the right opportunity to go check out a game and enjoy the live experience of being in a building with a bunch of other crazed maniacs with similar interests screaming their heads off, this is as good a time of any to do so. 
SeatGeek can help you do just that. They've got a really handy mobile app that requires only a few clicks to find the best values on tickets that are out there. And when you finally pick something out to your liking, they'll even provide you with a $20 rebate to use on future ones as well. To get your own $20 rebate on tickets, all you have to do is download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code PDO, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. All you've got to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO today and you'll get those $20. Now let's get back to the show. All right. Uh, Capitals Penguins here. Uh, I'm curious. Do you remember what your model had for this same matchup in round two last year? No, not off the top of my head. I just wonder because, like, I know that it, it favors the Capitals pretty pretty strongly this year, and I wonder whether that was the case last year because even though the Capitals were considered the favorite and, and had had the better regular season, the Penguins' you know underlying shot metrics had improved so much under Mike Sullivan in the second half of the season that you know it seems like it might have been much more of a draw, or maybe the, the Penguins might have even been favored. I was, I was just kind of curious thinking about that because. You know, it, 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 a lot of the similar names are here, but it does feel like it is a bit of a different matchup where the Penguins uh, aren't necessarily as, as looking as good as they were last year, regardless of, of how uh, the quick work they made of the Blue Jackets in round one. And, and there are some red flags to consider here, even beyond Chris Letang's absence, just with their depth and their ability to generate stuff beyond Malkin and Crosby just being out of this world. Yeah, I, I suspect last year that Pittsburgh would have would have been favored there, even with the injuries that they had. They I know that they were favored to come out of the East overall, even at the very beginning of the playoffs, mm-hmm. uh, which is not quite the same thing as saying that they were favored to be Washington head-to-head series. Um, in particular, the the Penguins started with the Rangers last year, who were who were by some distance the weakest of the playoff teams from the East, and so that that certainly would have boosted them up a little bit. Um, but at very least, I think I think. You know, based on my fuzzy memory, that suggests that you're looking at, um, you know, not the kind of of heavy. I mean, heavy for hockey. Fifty-seven percent is, you know, it's not that far off from fifty percent, but that's about as about as lopsided as you get given today's parity. You know, I, I think that the Capitals are even stronger this year than they were last year, and Pittsburgh has been seriously weakened by those injuries, like you mentioned. Yeah, well, so this is, this is the tough thing with, with series like this because, you know, while hockey is obviously uh, a team game and it's exceedingly difficult for one skater to make the type of tangible impact that, you know, like a quarterback in football can or a superstar in basketball or even a goalie in hockey. Uh, but at the same time, like we saw with Carlson a little bit against the Bruins in round one, like if a player is a type of singularly transcendent talent that just turns everything he touches into gold it can really change things and 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 mess with our expectations and the penguins happen to have two of those guys so while i look at the series and think to myself okay the penguins have a bunch of red flags their underlying numbers have been cratering for weeks now they're banged up they're missing chris letang who's arguably like one of their third most important player and the capitals are so much deeper this year and have so many different ways to, to 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 score and to win games like the penguins still have crosby and malkin and it's very conceivable that they could wind up being like the two best players in this series and just just have remarkable series where they score like 15 points each and all of a sudden you look up and you're just like i don't don't know what happened the the washington capitals were a better team but crosby and walken just just took over and just the capitals had no response for them well and that's i think that that's you put your finger right on on the the issue there is that it's a little bit misleading to say oh you know the poor Penguins, look at the defense score, look at so beaten up. But the Penguins, and, and that's, it's definitely a serious problem. Mm-hmm. But the Penguins 
unlike some other teams, you know, we talked earlier about Nashville about how their success is built, I think, from the way that their coaches deploy their extremely solid and, and even defense. And in Pittsburgh, that's not the case. That's not how the team was built, even when they're all healthy. Where the the in Pittsburgh, the system that they run and the the way that they win is clearly built from their forwards out, specifically from centers, from Crosby and Malkin. There's there's no doubt about that. And when you have that kind of you know transcendent, you said it, forward group, that's an extremely sensible approach. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, well, like I, we saw that in, in round one, I feel like because watching that opening series against the Blue Jackets, I didn't really come away from it at any point thinking like, like wow, the Penguins are such a vastly superior team. They're uh, the Blue Jackets shouldn't even be in the same league as them. It's it's like they were hanging around, biding their time, and then all of a sudden uh, they would just blitz them with these scoring binges in short but intense flurries, and and the Blue Jackets just didn't have the firepower to to respond and keep up with them, and. Yeah, the Capitals are more well suited to to do so. Their their power play is really good. They, you know, they have the Ovechkin Backstrom combo, and then they have the Kuznetsov line, which with Williams, which has been playing really well. So, you know, they have more firepower to deal with them. But it's it's going to be a problem. I think that from the Capitals' perspective, uh, when it comes to defending Crosby and Malkin, do you think it's one of these things where you know you have the Backstrom line and, and maybe the Eller line and, and you just kind of spread the wealth that way and then maybe free up the Kuznetsov line to maybe run wild a little bit with some more offensive opportunities or would you prioritize defending them a certain way and focusing on one lo- stopping one line or the other because it felt like in round one especially Trotz was maybe a bit slower to, to, to get into the line matching stuff against the Leafs but then as the series went along he really started to make the necessary adjustments and, and that made the difference for them so I don't know how, how do you see the Capitals defending uh, the two separate scoring lines here for the Penguins I think that that here more than any other place in the in the playoffs the, you're going to have to the Capitals and the Penguins are both going to have to apply the kind of we have to get ours first logic mm-hmm. where I, I think you know the I don't think especially because there are two of them I don't think you can game plan to say you know we're going to make sure that Crosby and Malkin are not a problem you know nobody gets to do that it just doesn't happen and and that's part of the what makes you know two players that good so much better than just having one player is that it, it makes it essentially impossible to coach around at that level and and Washington's defenders you know in general, don't fit that shutdown plan. They fit that, you know, forward first, the, you know, full five-man unit hockey that that the Capitals have run with such great success this year. And I think if you're if you're Washington, you have to take that approach. You have to say we're gonna we don't mind if this turns into a track meet. We're deeper than them. We can handle injuries more than them. And when you play faster like that, you're going to draw more penalties and you're going to take more penalties. That's a deliberate choice to play up tempo like that. And, and that I think also plays into the capital's hands um, where I think that their power play is an extraordinary strength of theirs and they ought to play to it. Whereas I don't think either of those things has been true for the Western series that we talked about. I feel like those are going to be primarily won or lost at five on five. Mm. Whereas the, the, I think both teams and part of what makes it what makes me really salivate at the prospect of of Pittsburgh Washington generally is not only are they are they the two far and away the two best teams left in the in the playoffs but I feel like they both ought to play a style that I really like and so that namely they both ought to play extremely up tempo very aggressive attacking hockey and um like the Maple Leafs do and did 
And, uh, and I feel like we might well get a repeat of the kind of bedlam that we saw in Washington, Toronto, only with um, some better quality teams. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. I, I definitely agree that you know, the best way to try and slow down uh, guys like Malkin and, and Crosby is going to be to just have the puck as often as possible and just keep them hemmed in their own zone because uh, I don't really think there's any player in this in this world that can they can sl- stop them consistently enough when they actually have the puck and have a full head of steam going. So uh, that's a good call. I think. Do you think it's a fair statement that whoever wins this series will be um, the favorite to come out of the East and maybe even win the Stanley Cup? Like I know that your your model likes the Ducks quite a bit right now, but uh, like w- like where are you leaning? It, it does feel like you know last year uh, these two teams met in, in round two, and I felt like. Whichever series, whichever team comes out of this, and I had no idea which one would, it felt like a coin flip, but whichever one does will be pretty well suited, barring some sort of a unforeseen catastrophic injury to, to make a long run here. And it, and it feels that way kind of again right now. I agree with that. I think, um, I think the Penguins injuries uh, on defense, if, for instance, if there were to be several other injuries on defense, they might have to go so far down the depth chart that that might be, that might be insurmountable for them. And so, in, you know, in terms of pure, pure depth, I think Washington looks quite a bit stronger. You know, the, the luxury of, of playing Schmidt sometimes and scratching him other times, mm-hmm. you know, where Pittsburgh's long past that point in their depth chart. I think, the, but on the whole, I agree with you. I think that the, that, that series is, is by far the strongest series, and either team who comes out of it will, will almost certainly be heavy favorites to win. Um, to win the whole cup. Yeah. And of course, the, the extra angle there too, of course, is that the the facing series there, the Ottawa um, Rangers series, is probably the weakest, the, the two weakest teams that are left in it. And so, you know, the only thing that would worry me is that if you get a sweep, say, in Senators Rangers for either team um, or a five game series, and on the other hand, you have a, you know, a lengthy six or seven game series with a pile of overtimes. Know, in Pittsburgh, Washington, then you might start to see, you know, fatigue and injuries start to to play an even larger role. You've already seen, you know, injuries were the great leveler in the in the Ottawa Boston series where they did considerably stronger. They played considerably better than you might expect, and part of the trouble there was injuries for Boston. And if you saw a repeat of that, where, you know, where Pittsburgh were to sustain a handful more injuries, or Washington were to lose. You know, if Ovechkin is lying about his knee and it's not actually 100%, and then mm-hmm. that gets re-aggravated, that kind of, you know, that plus one other injury, you know, it's not crazy to to imagine those kinds of misfortunes. But that's the kind of thing I think it would take to balance out those series. Wait a second, Michael. You're telling me that the Eastern Conference matchups being the, the one versus 2 seed and the 9 versus 12 seed, where the 12 seed has home ice advantage, don't make sense? I, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> I Do you know, actually, I don't. You know, I, I rail against the the system as it is. It has all sorts of weird quirks uh, that I don't like. But uh, but I I actually don't mind it the way that it is. Uh, there's enough randomness going in that I feel like it's good to get the good matchups whenever you can get them. And uh, but I feel like the matchups have been good. Yeah. The on the whole, the I mean, the games themselves have have been pretty decent. Well, I mean, the, I mean, the you know, from our perspective as fans, I definitely agree. You want to see the best teams play each other while they're at full strength. I think that the issue is that, like, if you're the Washington Capitals, you should be rewarded for being uh, the best regular season team, and that would entail that you know, playing inferior opponents uh, and getting getting as far as you can before you have to start playing uh, your strongest peers. So it, it seems kind of unfair for them to have to play the Penguins here, but I, it'll be a fun to watch for sure. And listen, like I, 
I'm I'm supposed to be an objective journalist, so I I, I only really uh, root for just good games, good hockey, and great stories. But it, it it definitely would be a nice little cathartic feeling here for the Capitals to finally get over the hump, beat the Penguins, and and make a make a nice little run here. I think that you know there's a lot of people rooting for that right now, and there's also you know as 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 critical as we can be sometimes in terms of our analysis and and thinking with our heads. Like sometimes it, it's tough not to have this nagging human element in the back of your head that's just warning you about everything that's happened in years past and not getting too uh, overly attached to it because the playoffs can be just so cruel sometimes. I think the cruelty is is inevitable. It doesn't matter if you put your heart into it or not. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's 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 wrap this up with that Senators Rangers series. Uh, your model has this one as a as a true 50-50 coin flip, which is a, a good way to describe where I am also at with this, because I think it's an interesting series to dissect from a matchup and X's and O's perspective, but in terms of like figuring out how it's going to play out, I I have no clue. Maybe 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 this discussion we're going to have here in the next 10-15 minutes will we'll sort a little bit of it out, but I'm, uh, I, I honestly have no, no idea which way to lean other than the Senators have home ice advantage, so maybe they should be slightly favored, but it's it's pretty close. Well, I think, I mean, the 50-50, of course, comes from the fact that they do have home ice advantage, mm-hmm. but also but also the Rangers are slightly better, I think. And then, so those balance out about, about like you'd expect. And part of what makes this series so fascinating is that both of these teams have pretty substantial weaknesses at various places, which I don't think can be said about any other team in the, in the remaining in the competition except possibly the Oilers. You know, they, like, for instance, I don't think they could, they could sustain an injury to McDavid. And, and there's no, there's no other teams where you can say, you know, a single player could be, could be the difference between you having a competitive series and maybe winning in six games versus an extremely unpleasant early exit, except for the Rangers and Ottawa. You know, if Carlson is apparently playing with two hairline fractures in his heel, which is preposterous. Um, But if, but if he were to go down for, if he were to miss, you know, even two or three games, and that would itself be more than enough to to almost certainly knock the Senators out. And the same is true, I think, for for Lundqvist in in New York. And that's part of actually speaking of Lundqvist, that's part of what really excites me about um, about Ottawa and versus the Rangers is that both of the teams have extremely strong goaltending. Craig Anderson remains underrated for reasons that elude me, um, but both teams, as a defense core, are quite weak. And so the you know the Rangers still give regular minutes to Jan Girardi. A lot of the people that they put in his place are also not especially strong. And in particular, um, they're not especially strong at clearing the puck once they get it. And so that tends to be the kind of hockey which which is really exciting, where you can generate shots, you know, not just off the rush, but you can generate really good scoring chances on the forecheck against both Ottawa and the Rangers. You know, because of the way that that many of their defenders don't play well with the puck in pardon me, in their own zone. So that also, you know, if you, if you really want to see goaltenders make tremendous saves, I think that's where they're going to be, is Anderson and Lundqvist in that series. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point you bring up with the uh, with the Rangers blue line because uh, you know while the pieces they have might not be necessarily that great for Alain Vigneault to work with, like I, the way he deploys those guys is so head-scratching for me. Like, listen, I, I, I think I'm still a, an Alain Vigneault defender. I think that 
he's generally a pretty smart and progressive coach and better than most. But I mean, his inexplicable love of this Nick Holden and Mark Stahl pairing is, is truly mystifying to me, especially when he not only keeps them together, but plays them more than Brady Shea and Brendan Smith, who are both legitimately good. So the Rangers have like three good to very good defensemen in my mind, and then three bad to very, very bad ones. And how they spread the ice time amongst those six guys doesn't match up with how good they actually are. And that's going to be a massive issue because in the postseason when these games slow down and everything's magnified and other teams can game plan more against you from a, on a game-to-game basis you're they're going to eventually find a way to exploit those weaknesses and we definitely saw that you know whenever that stall hold holden pairing was out on the ice against the canadians like it was just a, a complete adventure out there so i'd be concerned about that from the from the rangers perspective from the senators perspective i mean Eric Carlson's a, a god amongst men. It, it's it's tough for us to overstate what he did in that round one series. You mentioned the the news that came out about his hairline fractures in his foot after blocking a shot, and I thought in game one he looked like he was laboring a bit, particularly kind of stopping and starting when he got into full motion. But beyond that, as the series went along, he was just a total blur. And and I tweeted this out, but I, I stand by it. I think that when he gets going, you know, when they retrieve the puck in their own zone and he gets going up that middle lane in transition. Uh, I just like find myself just jumping up and yelling at the TV, get him the puck. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like one of the rare times where I, like the inner fan in me just comes out and, and I, I, I get to express my excitement. And I think that, you know, this side of Connor McDavid, he's the most exciting thing that's going on in hockey right now. So I'm excited to watch more of him in this series and hopefully, uh, that injury doesn't get worse and, and limit him physically because that would be a real shame. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it's definitely true. And, and that, I mean, there's no question that unless he gets hurt, Carlson is going to be at a huge, huge factor. Mm. The and and you know if he if he mysteriously disappears for even a even a handful of periods, really, let alone games, you know that's that's pretty much curtains for Ottawa. And and a lot of it is the same the same sort of trouble that you were mentioning about deployment decisions, where the Rangers have you know a handful of of weak and a handful of strong defenders, but opinion about that appears to be completely different inside the Rangers coaching room than it does on, you know, podcasts like this. And the same thing is true in Ottawa where Guy Boucher is, is extremely fond of playing Cody Cece, who's, who's not nearly as good as, as, you know, his minutes seem to suggest to me alongside Dion Phaneuf, the, who is not that great, but also not that bad, but they get incredible minutes in shutdown roles, which Phaneuf is not well suited to, which Cece is extremely not well suited to the, and then the third pair, contains Mark Borowiecki much more often than it, for instance, contains um, Frederick Clayson, who would be a considerably stronger choice. So the, the mystifying coaching decisions on defense are, are equally present. And part of why they're mystifying is that, is that there are so many decisions that need to be made because both teams have so many weaknesses that, you know, that, that both coaches are constantly trying to fix. You know, and so they're constantly shuffling, constantly rearranging things. They don't have the luxury that, say, Peter Laviolette has, where he says, you know, look, these are my guys. They stayed like this. They just, you know, we just roll it out again and again and again, and we win on percentages. You know, in, in Ottawa and in the Rangers, it has to be much more opportunistic than that. And because both teams have those kinds of weaknesses that can't be papered over, you know, that's where you're going to see that really fun coaching matchups because as soon as somebody fixes one weakness, they'll they'll necessarily have exposed another one. And if the opposing coach can exploit that, then then you'll see that back and forth that I that I really enjoy. 
you just you you never see so amazing, Micah. You just in the most eloquent way possible uh, said that Cody, CC, and Dion Phaneuf suck. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't put it in those words. I think that's, that's trite. I think I think uh, you know Phaneuf can uh, in, in the right role he can be fine. I, I think that Cody, CC, especially in that series against Boston, was. Uh, I think saying that he's a liability, it would be a fair way to put it, and that the Senators should try actively to uh, limit his exposure uh, against New York's top forwards because that could uh, that could become a real problem if he's out there uh, too frequently. I agree, and uh, <laughs> but it's but being a liability is one thing. Or perhaps better to say, having liabilities is one thing, and 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 that's part of what makes hockey so fascinating is that is that virtually every player has liabilities of one sort or another, be they, you know, very serious or not especially serious. And so that's part of why you see the randomness that you get is that all it takes is a single shift, you know, and you, you know, you don't turn very well to that side. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's in the back of your net before you can even analyze what it is you did wrong. That, you know, that adds to the, adds to the fun. And, and so whether or not those things get noticed, whether or not those things can get exploited is, is different again. And one of the most maddening things I'm sure for coaches is when they detect weaknesses and then try to exploit them and it doesn't work. It must be infuriating. Yeah. Well, so if you're the Rangers and, you know, let me preface this by saying that it's, it's a, just a testament to what Carlson is capable of and how he's on a different playing field than uh, any of his contemporaries right now, because we'd almost never have this discussion about a player playing his position. But if you're the Rangers, how do you go about slowing him down like is there a certain uh matchup or style that you would try to play against him because it seems like just you know hoping he stops playing this well like isn't something i would bank on right now and it seems like you'd have to like make some sort of a concerted effort to do something beyond uh just hoping and praying and i'm I'm wondering what that is maybe that's why uh maybe that's why these coaches are paid the the money they are and have the jobs they have because they are expected to to figure out something that you know people like myself can't. So I'm I'm not sure what it is. Do you have any any theories on, on what you do? I think you the I think it's the opposite of what you have to do with with players like the Sedins, for instance. And they were famously people used to say you know that that the more you try to check them, the the more silly that you look, because they they were extremely good at playing a reactive game where the instant you were close to them, all of a sudden then the puck was on the other one stick that you weren't worrying about the, and, and they were extremely patient where, and so if you, if you didn't attack them and just, just sat back, then they would, they would find holes for you. And Carlson, I think is almost the opposite of that where he plays extremely quickly. No, he doesn't just skate quickly, but he plays very quickly. And, and the mental decision-making process is very fast. And, and so one of the things that you, that you have to do, I think, is you have to immediately attack him constantly when he has the puck. It's very, very difficult because he has such speed and he can blow by you. Um, and so you have to accept that kind of high-risk strategy is going to lead to a handful of rushes. But if you, but if you don't, then, then you give him the time to be creative and then, and to which there is no defense because you've given him time to unpick all of the other things that you're doing. So you have to play much, much more up-tempo and, and the Rangers have the forward pieces to do that. It's not like you know some of the other teams would have more difficulty playing a style like that. But I don't think the Rangers will. You know, you can send send a guy like Grabner, and you can say just skate at him as fast as you can. You know, because Grabner is fast enough to take away options from Carlson. And you know, and you can. I, I think you can 
play like that. And it involves doing things that coaches don't like. It would involve a, a whole pile of players stepping up and being on the wrong side of the puck, you know, and they'll be caught a few times and there'll be some embarrassing moments. Then there'll be a goal or two where people will say, you know, how can you, how can you justify playing like that in the playoffs? You know, you had to buckle down. But, but I think that if you want to actually on aggregate neutralize Carlson, you have to play like that at least a little. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, like Carlson was, uh, was amazing in that series. And I think that it's evidenced by just the splits with how the senators did while he was on the ice first off of it. But I know that something we should give some other guys some credit here. Cause it's obviously, you know, he didn't win that single handedly. And, and it's something that we highlighted all the way back at the deadline when I had you on the show, which was, you know, the additions of guys like Burroughs and Stahlberg may not have seemed like much uh, at the time, but just the fact that they were replacing uh, offensive black holes, like Chris Kelly and Chris Neal and Tom Pia was just such a big upgrade on a relative scale for them. And then you come, Combine that with the addition of Clark MacArthur, who, uh, if you have an, any semblance of a heart uh, that's fully functioning and beating in your chest, you couldn't help but feel incredibly happy for him after he scored that goal. Uh, alleviates a lot of the concerns we had about this team in the first half of the year with their depth. So that, and then you know Bobby Ryan finally uh, providing some offense. I think he had 13 goals all year, and he had four in this first round series alone. is is huge and. All of a sudden, now they have other players beyond just you know Kyle Duras, his line, and Eric Carlson, and and that definitely makes them tougher to play against. So they have that going for them. It's it, it is a better team than they may have you know their full long, full season long numbers may have looked like, and we need to give them credit for that. And I think that's that and the combination of the Blues of uh, the Bruins injuries in round one uh, were things that you know we should have factored in more closely for the people that did just pick the Bruins to to, to beat, beat them in five games or something like that. I agree, and the the forward core is. It's not just that it's, I mean, it's not just that it's decent. It's that it's almost unrecognizably different from the forward core that they rolled out for a huge chunk of the year. And, and Bobby Ryan playing differently is part of that. MacArthur is part of that. Um, you know, Stone, for instance, who's, who's by far their best forward, that played very badly in the Boston series, and they still came out with a win. So there's, you know, that's, that's one of the things with, with the streakiness and part of what makes team games so fun is that as, you know, as one, and that's part of why also you can have teams that get swept out is that, you know, if, if everybody happens to go or even like half your team happens to go on a downswing all at once, then, you know, then that's curtains for you. But the, but the forward group in Ottawa is just is better than it was a few weeks ago. I mean, not even months ago, weeks ago. And, and MacArthur is a huge part of that. You know, that's, that's not a depth pickup. That's a, a top line guy that you just activated out of nothing for no cost mm-hmm. is, you know, although, you know, although you say like, on the one hand, it's true. It's an incredibly heartwarming story. It's, it's, it's it's impossible not to feel from, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm really worried that he's going to wind up like Chris Pronger and, you know, and, and already people were saying, you know, probably he'll never play again. Maybe he won't even lead a normal life again. And now he's scoring overtime goals. It's, you know, you still worry for him if he gets the kind of hit that, you know, even a the sort of one game suspension style hit, that's enough to, I mean, you don't want to be too dramatic, but it could, mm-hmm. it could end his career completely. Yeah. That's it's terrifying. I, I definitely agree. It's yeah. like, it's one of those things where it, it feels like a little bittersweet because you want to just be happy for it and just be fully optimistic. But at the same time, you just like you just can't help but think of how badly it could turn out, and and that's like a scary proposition to to deal with pretty much every time he steps over the board. So, no, I exactly. I, I agree with that. Um, all right, Micah, I think we uh, I think we did it. We hammered it out here. Um, <laughs> do you wanna do you wanna do you wanna plug some stuff? Where can people follow you? Where can they check out your work and all that jazz? Yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter at ineffective math. The uh, I uh, I have to work in hockey because I wasn't smart enough to be a mathematician. There we go. And uh, that's, that's that's what your tagline. That's your tagline. Um, 
That's right. And you can, uh, and I'm, I'm putting up the, the, we've been talking about probabilities for series and you can find those. Those are updated after every game and those are on the front page at hockeyviz.com. Yeah. And, uh, so I would appreciate it if you all, you know, told me nice things about the design scheme. Absolutely. That's a, that's a must for all hockey fans out there. Thanks for taking the time again. And we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you again down the road. Thank you, Dimitri. Take care. Cheers. The Hockey PDO cast with Dimitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast. Mm-hmm.